from PRX. Studio 360. Hi, it's Kurt, and this is one of our regular podcast shorts on Studio 360. So, I don't know, Studio 90, Studio 45. Anyhow, one of the great places to take people when they visit New York City is the American Museum of Natural History. And that was true even before it became famous in those Ben Stiller movies. It's easy to get lost in its vast halls, which are lined with life-size dioramas of Siberian tigers prowling and Alaskan moose battling, and of course that giant whale suspended in midair. In the Hall of Biodiversity, you can see endangered species and a skeleton of a dodo bird. But one thing the museum doesn't really explore is how humans have intentionally altered the evolution of certain species, like breeding chickens to lay more perfect eggs, or all the ways we've engineered dogs to make them hunt better or be cuter or be more best-friendly. It is, after all, the Museum of Natural History, not the Museum of Unnatural History, which raises the question of where does what we think of as the natural world end? That's a question that a tiny museum in Pittsburgh has been asking. Irina Zhorov is a reporter for a radio show called The Pulse out of WHYY in Philadelphia. She visited the museum recently and sent us this postcard. In a business district east of Pittsburgh's downtown, between a pizza shop and a Vietnamese restaurant is an easy-to-miss storefront. Welcome to the Center for Post-Natural History. Richard Pell is the curator of the small museum. He's 40 but looks younger, informal in a pair of shorts, perpetually smiling sneakily. His museum is a collection of specimens, everything from seeds to mammals, that have been shaped by humans. Standing by him in the entryway, for example, is a genetically engineered goat designed to produce industrial spider silk in its milk. He motions past it. So it go past the curtain into the permanent collection here? The exhibition room is dimly lit, kind of mysterious. We posit a case where Pell shows off an English bulldog skull. Descended from wolves thousands of years ago, they've been bred by people to accentuate their punched-in noses. But now the animals can barely breathe. Across the room, illuminated display boxes built into black walls shine like gems. In one of them, standing upright, is a white rat. This rat is a perfect case study to better understand the story Pell wants to tell in his museum. This is an alcoholic laboratory rat uh, that was bred by the Finnish government. Alcoholism is a big public health problem in Finland, so scientists bred the rat to study the disease. But to get to this point in its breeding evolution, we have to go back more than 100 years. The first time that human beings that we know of bred rats in captivity uh, was in London and New York in the late 18th, early 19th century uh, for a sport, a blood sport, called rat baiting. Those cities suffered from rat infestations. People would gather a hundred rats, throw them in a pen with a dog, and bet on how long it took the dog to kill all the rats. This is like something that guys would do over, you know, cigars and beer or whatever. If you saw the movie Gangs of New York, you might remember the scene with a crowd of top hat wearing men cheering on a terrier. Gentlemen! The match is due to commence. The count to beat is 25 rodents in three minutes. 
some rat catchers started setting aside interesting-looking rats to breed. That's when you start seeing recessive-gened albino rats, like the one in the case. Those white rats were separated out and begat more of the same. And those white rats have a different cultural meaning than the, the dirty-looking street rats. And so they get treated differently. Maybe they come home. They become the pets. They become the fancy rats that get bred throughout the rest of the 19th century, largely by women. Aristocratic Victorian women in England adorned their rats with ribbons and socialized with them. But they also started breeding the rats for specific traits. And those rats are the ones that get used for lab work. In other words, the road to the Finnish alcoholic rat was a winding one. Our story just went from blood sports to hobbyists to geneticists, all within the same lineage. And that's what post-natural history is. He defines post-natural organisms as ones that have been altered by people intentionally and heritably. Heritably meaning we've altered its evolutionary path in some fashion. Uh, it affects its offspring. It's not just a, a dog with a weird haircut. It's we've bred dogs that have weird hair. Uh, and intentional in that it reflects our culture in some way. They're, they reflect what we want, what we fear, what we desire. All of the specimens in Pell's museum have similarly complex biographies. They started out as wild animals, and for whatever reason, food, research, productivity, aesthetics, humans have modified them to fit their needs. There are no universal stories. They're all very specifically tied to the people who make them. Pell took on the job of telling these post-natural stories when he realized that natural history museums weren't doing it. Curators viewed such specimens as boring, or they didn't fit ideas of natural history in the culture of the 19th and 20th century, when the museums were being built. Stephen Tonser, director of science and research at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, says the museums drew a line between humans and animals that's not really there. A typical natural history museum, he says. Tells a story that's really um, very much woven up in the Judeo-Christian um, notion of humans as separate from the rest of the living world. And it sets up uh, a story of self versus other. We often hear the phrase man versus nature. Sarah Ray, who studies museums at the University of Pennsylvania, agrees. She says curators have historically decided what got in displays and what got left out. What you have is people making a decision about what was natural, what was nature, that was very intentional, um, or it's very infused with like the human idea of what is natural. Um, and it really kind of implicitly takes out all of the human influence that you find in the natural habitats of these animals. Natural history, then, was something pure, non-human. It was buffalo grazing on pristine prairie, not buffalo being hunted by Native Americans or raised for meat. It was something other. So the good stuff wasn't on the farm. You had to travel for it. No wonder cows and dogs didn't show up in the dioramas much. They didn't fit those moors. And those standards are still not regularly questioned. When you're a kid and you walk into a museum um, in natural history, you're like, oh, that's geology and that's, you know, Asian mammals. Or, you know, what you just sort of take for granted the categories that are there and the information that you're being given um, as just sort of being this objective scientific entity that exists sort of outside of yourself. 
I ask Pell to show me around the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, across town from his own in Pittsburgh, to see just how few post-natural specimens make it into displays. One more floor. I think we'll start in Egypt, actually. We'll do it chronologically. Okay. <laughs> in the Egypt Room, an archaeological human-focused exhibit, behind glass, Pell points to a 4,000-year-old mummified bundle that has been x-rayed to reveal a cat inside. That is an old cat. I don't know, in cat years, I'm not even sure what that's going to come to. Next, we walk over to a wing dedicated to Arctic polar people and look at a couple of black taxidermied sled dogs mounted in 1896. Carnegie's Stephen Tonser had joined us. Contact with Arctic peoples was much more limited, so these were exotic, right? But now you can, you can find Siberian huskies or various other Arctic breeds of dogs uh, generally bred and available. They're not exotic anymore. That could be why the Field Museum in Chicago donated these dogs to the Carnegie Museum in 1984. Finally, we make our way to the bird hall. The birds are arranged by habitat and specific traits. And then there's this one case that stands out. It's sort of birds that exist within popular culture. So you've got Tweety Bird from Warner Brothers uh, alongside an actual yellow canary. Uh, We have Foghorn Leghorn, who's uh, a chicken, uh, and there's kind of an empty space next to it. It's empty because the museum couldn't find a chicken in its collection to put there. An extinct dodo bird? No problem. But a chicken? Nope. So in terms of domesticated taxidermy on display in the museum, I've been looking, and uh, that could be it. (laughs) Pell seems delighted to have caught the museum with its millions of specimens in this funny position. No chicken. For him, including a chicken and all those other post-natural organisms he keeps at his museum— would make for a more realistic representation of our world. And it doesn't have to be boring. If told well, he says, their stories, just like the lab rats, would be as compelling as the, quote, exotic animals. Standing by a polar bear and a dated map of the polar ice cap, Tonser and Pell start to talk about the importance of thinking more holistically. They mostly agree that, historically, museums have done a poor job of showing the interconnectedness of humans and the natural world. It's it's the problem with the categories is what we're calling attention to. Um, Because we systematically edit ourselves out of the story. Uh, Science does this all the time. You're you're doing a field study, but you kind of don't acknowledge the people that are there. You take your pictures, but you try to get out of the shot. Um, And so what we're... What we're doing is just advocating for a a wider lens, one that just takes full account of the the people that are involved in their stories, their motivations, the contradictions. We've treated science as something that we can separate from the rest of human existence. And we've treated, in fact, the world as a giant machine in which we can isolate parts and manipulate those parts, when, in fact, everything is interconnected and the unintended consequences of our really powerful and in many ways beneficial um, scientific advances are, are now being seen on a global scale. Tonser is talking about climate change, species extinction, big changes in the, quote, natural world. His museum, the Carnegie, is starting to rethink how to incorporate humans into the exhibits, to start to tell a different story, 
one that's not so clean. I'm looking for people to take responsibility for the great power that they've taken on. Thanks to Irina Zhorov for that story. It originally appeared on WHYY's The Pulse, on which you can hear lots more stories about people working in science and health by subscribing to it on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we will have our weekly broadcast for you right here on Thursday.